hey, um, happy new year. It's a brand new year. It's 2018. Hope you all had a good new year, a uh, good Christmas. Um, I heard an interesting uh, statistic or fact uh, a couple weeks ago. I had to think about it for a minute, but it made sense. Uh, someone told me that up until a week ago, you know, there's billions of people in the world, and up until a week ago, every single adult in the world had to have been born before the year 2000. You wouldn't have one single adult in the world born after the year 2000. And starting a week ago, now we're going to start to see adults in this world that were born in 2000 or later, which is crazy. I remember when I was a kid, looking ahead, some of you might relate, think, you know, thinking ahead to the year 2000, trying to imagine what's it going to be like, you know, are there going to be cars that fly or, or hoverboards? And now here it is, 2000 was 18 years ago and it just makes me feel real old. So, um, happy new year. I do want to say uh, something special today too. Uh, today's my wife and I, our 17-year wedding anniversary, and so we're celebrating that today, so love you, Christina, happy anniversary, and uh, yeah, 17 years ago, we stood up on that stage and exchanged our vows, and uh, it was a good time. We, uh, we had a reception in a gym, uh, we went down to this gymnasium, and that's where we had a reception, and, and uh, this morning, I was thinking about 17 years later, we're here in a gym, so we've come a long way, right? <laughs> From a gym to a gym. So how many people, by the way, enjoyed that annoying little song that we just played up there before the, before the service started? I guarantee you by the end of the series, in the next few weeks, that song's going to be stuck in your head because it's been stuck in my head for like the last month. Um, and like Jeremy said, we're starting a brand new series called Stay Positive. And uh, I'm excited for this series for a number of reasons. One of them being that I'm someone that struggles with negativity, okay? Especially this time of year when it's dark when I get up, it's dark when I get done working for the day, it's cold out, negativity is just something I struggle with, and I think a lot of us struggle with that, and so I'm excited for the series. As we go in, we're going to look at different positive biblical qualities in the coming weeks, and uh, I believe that as we see God's Word active and working in our lives, that we're just naturally going to become more positive people, so I'm excited about this. I'm also excited because last year, last January, we started going through the book of Luke, and we got all the way up through chapter 15. Anyone else hear an echo in here? I hear a big echo when I talk. Maybe it's just me. Um, we got all the way up through chapter 15, and then in September we took a break, and now today we're going to jump into chapter 16 of Luke, and we're going to continue on. So I'm excited to see more from Dr. Luke. Now, uh, I was thinking uh, recently, you know, it, it, it was Christmas time a couple weeks ago, and so I always, around the Christmas holidays, a lot of times I reflect back and I think back to my childhood. You know, my wife and I, we have kids, and so um, a lot of times I, it's this weird thing where I, I'm thinking back to my childhood and how I saw Christmas, and then I look at my kids and I wonder what's the Christmas experience like for them. And um, something that I remember just recently, I'd forgotten about for a long time, was I had this great, we called her a great aunt when I was growing up. Her name was Phyllis McChesney. And something about Phyllis, she was this little old lady, she was, I don't know, she was in her 80s, she was about five feet tall, and um, Phyllis, she was such a special lady, every year at Christmas she'd give me a gift, she'd give all my cousins gifts, I had a lot of cousins, she'd give my aunts and uncles gifts, um, she'd just give everybody in the family gifts. And the funny part about it was Phyllis wasn't even technically a part of our family, okay? Um, Phyllis was best friends with my grandma since the kindergarten, so they had been best friends since back in like the late 1920s, early 1930s, 
That's when they became friends. So after 70 or 80 years of friendship, she just kind of became a part of the family. I didn't know until after she died that she wasn't actually one of my relatives. But anyway, I was thinking back to Christmas, how she'd always give us gifts. And there's this one Christmas, actually Jeremy Stuber, when he was doing announcements, he mentioned middle school and how it can be an awkward age. I was just getting into middle school. And I remember this one Christmas, uh, we're sitting around with all the relatives. Uh, I'm opening up my gift. And I see on my gift, it's from Phyllis McChesney. And I'm like, what's this going to be? So I open it up, and it's a book. And I hold up the book for everyone in the room to see, because that's what you do. You, you open your gift, and then you hold it up. And the room had been really quiet up until that point. And then everyone just starts laughing, like just uproarious laughter. And um, it, it was because of the title of the book. The title of the book was uh, How to Be a Winning Loser. And... Everyone's laughing, and I'm thinking to myself, like, this isn't funny. Like, this 80-something-year-old lady thinks that I'm a loser, and I need a book on how to become a winner. Like, what's so funny about this? And it was kind of traumatic. And um, in retrospect, looking back, on the cover of the book, there's a baseball player. And I played Little League Baseball growing up, so I'm sure that's why she gave it to me. I'm sure she didn't actually think I was a loser. At least that's, that's what I tell myself today because that'd be really sad. <laughs> All right, let's, let's dive into Scripture. Like I said, we're going to go into Luke chapter 16 today, so if you have your Bibles um, with you, please open up your Bibles. You can follow up along the screen. We'll have the Scripture. Otherwise, you can follow on your smartphones too. But Luke chapter 16, today we're going to be talking about um, generosity. And there's two stories we're going to read today. And the first story we're going to read, it's about uh, it's, a, it's about a dishonest manager. And just quick background, what's going on is Jesus, ha there's this crowd of people that are listening to Jesus. Jesus is the one that's telling the story. And the crowd begins to kind of disperse. And all that's left in the crowd is a group of Pharisees. So that's right now who the audience is for the story that we're going to read through. And it's a story about a dishonest manager. And manager in those days, another name for manager was steward. And it was basically a person that either managed one of two things, either uh, property or money. So that's what this man would have been managing. And we don't really know exactly what uh, he was dishonest with. Uh, there's some theories that maybe he was embezzling money. We don't know. Bottom line, he was in trouble and he was dishonest. And so in verse 1 it says, He also said to the disciples, this is Jesus speaking. There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he was called, and he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And so he says these three words. He says, Give an account. Give an account. And these are three words that we're all going to hear someday. We're all going to stand before God someday, and God's going to ask us, and he's going to tell us to give an account. And for a lot of us, I think we imagine ourselves standing before God, you know, coming up with excuses why we did all the bad things that we did, you know, explaining those away, you know, God, this is why I was speeding that one day, or this is why I cheated on that test, or, or uh, God, this is why that one day I, I, I cheered for the Green Bay Packers, you know. God, these are why I did... Just kidding. These are, these, these are why, this is why I did the bad things that I did. Um, but we're also going to have to give an account to God for the things that we didn't do. Okay? We're going to have to explain to God, God's given us all resources, and we're going to have to explain to God why we didn't use some of the resources that he gave us. 
There's a great influential uh, English pastor, maybe you've heard of him, his name was Charles Spurgeon. Um, he was uh, very influential over in Europe, in England. He died in 1892. When this pastor died, over 60,000 people came and paid their respects at his funeral, and 100,000 people lined the streets to pay their respects during the funeral procession. Charles Spurgeon once said that every single one of us at some point, we're gonna have to give an account for our time, for our talent, and for our influence. For time, for talent, for influence. And what we need to understand about those things too is that every single one of those are finite things. Like they're all gonna run out. We only have so much time on earth, right? We, we only have so much talent and talent doesn't last forever. You know, Michael Jordan, I don't know if Jeremy Stuber's in here. Jeremy disagrees with me on this, but I would say Michael Jordan is the greatest basketball player to ever play, okay? But he's retired now, he can't still do all the same moves that he used to. He can't jump from the free throw line and dunk the basketball. You know, he's, his talent is slowly going away. We're all gonna lose the talent that God's given us. And our influence is gonna go away too. Even the most influential people in our society, uh, people that were extremely influential 10 years ago, some of them I could say their names and half of us probably wouldn't even remember who that person was. So let's go to verse three, it says, and the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master has taken the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. So he realizes he's a manager. That's what he knows how to do. He doesn't know how to do anything else besides you know, manage. He's not a ditch digger. He doesn't make cabinets. He's not handy. He knows how to manage and that's it. And he says, okay, I'm in trouble here. Verse four, he says, I've decided what to do so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So this manager or steward, he gets to thinking and he gets this idea. He says, okay, what I'm gonna do, I'm gonna go out and I, my, my boss, this is him speaking, he says, my boss, he's this rich man and he has all these debts that people owe him. There's all these loans and debts out there. He says, I'm gonna go out, I'm gonna settle these debts, I'm gonna do it at a reduced price, I'm gonna make a bunch of friends, I'm gonna build up my network so that when I'm done managing for this rich man, I'll have this network, you know, this is, this is pre um, LinkedIn days, you know, it's not as easy to build up your network, but he's gonna build that up and he's gonna get another management job when he's done. So summoning, verse five, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. And there's different theories about what he's doing here, but the most credible theory out there, what he's doing is this dishonest manager, the, the way that he would make his money would be by collecting on the interest that was owed on these debts. And so what he's doing here, he's cutting out the interest that's owed, he's collecting the money that was originally given out by his boss, and then he's, he's just forgoing his profit, he's forgoing his kickback, his commission, whatever you wanna call it. Um, but he's okay with that because he knows that this is gonna set him up good for the future. Verse eight says, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And honestly, this part always confused me because while technically the rich man and Jesus, when he's telling this story, um, he doesn't approve of the guy's conduct, he does approve of his shrewdness. And I was thinking, why is being shrewd such a good thing? 
Okay, but there's some people that say being shrewd is a good thing. Like, there's this furry little animal, if you want to put that slide up. He would say that being a shrew is a good thing, right? That's a good thing. He's a shrew, okay. Or what about, we have another slide you can pop up there. This guy would say that being shrewd is a good thing. Dwight Schrute, if you've seen The Office, you get it. No, but in all honesty, being shrewd is a good thing. Because Jesus says, the sons of the world, which are the businessmen of Jesus' day, he says they're bolder, they're wiser, and they're more forward-thinking than the people of God, which I think would have been like a, a punch to the gut to hear that. But it always amazes me, the things that applied in Jesus' day, it seems like there's some things that just, they still, you know, they, they apply today, human nature, the way that things work. I was thinking about today, you know, business folks today, in general, and I don't want to offend anyone, but if you took 100 business folks or salespeople and you took 100 average Christians, I'm guessing that the business people would be more dedicated to reaching some of their goals than we are as Christians to living out the commandments that Jesus has given us. You know, Jesus told us to love our neighbors as ourselves. He told us to go out and to take care of the least of these, to take care of the poor and the hurting. And, and, and I just think that we have a long way to go. I have a long way to go. I heard an a interesting statistic recently. I don't know if this is true, but it wouldn't surprise me. I was reading that Coca-Cola is more widely distributed throughout the world than the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's just hearing this, this sugary soft drink. There's more people that have access to a carbonated beverage than to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. And I think that just goes to show business people are great at getting out there. They're just going to go and they're going to hit the streets and they're going to work hard. And they're going to accomplish what they need to. Christians, for some reason, a lot of times we're just relaxed and we just don't you know, feel that fire and that urgency to get out and do what we need to do. But Jesus understood. He understood that someday we're going to be judged. Someday we're going to stand before God and like I said, we're going to have to give an account for what we did and what we didn't do, what we didn't do with the resources that were given. And I hear some people say, I hear some people say like, you know, don't judge me, only God can judge me and they seem to take like this almost joy in it, like it's this good thing and, and there's this popular internet meme I've seen going around for a while. You know, like, it should scare you, it at least should make you think twice, like the fact that God is going to judge me someday, like that's a big deal. And while it can be scary and it should cause us to pause and evaluate how we're living out our Christian walk, um, on the flip side, you know, it can be a point of joy too. If we're taking what God has given us and if we're really dedicated to living our lives like Jesus and if we're looking out for the hurting, for the broken, for the people that need help, if, if our heart's out there and we're doing the best that we can while following Jesus, I think that someday, you know, we will stand before God and he'll say, well done. You know, he'll be proud of us. That's something we can look forward to. Let's go to verse 9. He says, And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. And now Jesus here, he isn't, he isn't advoca advocating um, acquiring unrighteous wealth, but he is telling us, again, that we need to take the resources that we have now and use it and plan ahead for eternity. Verse 10 says, One who is faithful in very little is faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. And we see here that money is considered, material possessions are considered what he calls the least of things. 
Okay, so we have these material possessions we've been given, but that's, those are small things compared to the greater spiritual things. And what Jesus is saying here is, if we want to be entrusted with the greater spiritual things, we need to show God that we can manage the least of things, the smaller material things. What are we going to do with those things? Verse 11 says, If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, Jesus here, he's not talking about working two jobs. He's talking about slaves and masters. And he's saying, if you're a slave, you can't serve two masters. You definitely can't serve each one 100%. And I could even say the same for jobs, if we want to go there. You can't work two full-time jobs and give 100% to both jobs. You might be able to for a short time, but you can't sustain that for a long time. We all serve one master. Okay? Hopefully we're serving Jesus. Hopefully Jesus is our Lord. But if we won't sacrifice for Jesus, but we will sacrifice for something else, like let's say money, then money's our master. In other words, who we serve is who we sacrifice for. Who we serve is who we sacrifice for. There's a story, this is a true story, I double, triple checked it. Uh, there's a, a businessman back around 1990. It's, it's actually a sad story, but he's... Downtown LA, there had been um, a rash of robberies. People had been stealing, um, holding people up at gunpoint, stealing watches. Maybe some of you heard this story. Um, and this businessman, on his way to work, downtown LA, he got shot. He made it all the way up to his business. He was staggering up to the business. He collapsed. He yelled out some names, onlookers, like heard him yelling out these names, turned out it was his kids' names. He died, and uh, pedestrians, people coming up, paramedics, they could see he had something shiny in his hand. He had a $10,000 Rolex watch that he was clutching in his hand. He had been held up. They told him, give me the Rolex, and he died for his Rolex. He, he died as a sacrifice to his God at that point. That's who he was willing to sacrifice for. Now we're going to go on to the second story, and I know that's kind of, kind of a, a sad way to end there, and today we're talking about, you know, stay positive. It's going to be about staying positive, right? But that, I almost didn't talk about this first passage, by the way, too, because it is something that's kind of difficult to go through. Um, it's not really happy, but the more that I studied it, the more that I read through it, I just really felt like I just need to go through it today. So hopefully it spoke to some of you. Let's go to the second story here. It's in um, verses 19 through 31, and it's here that we're going to see a story about a rich man and a guy named Lazarus. And it's worth noting in this story, by the way, um, this is the only parable that Jesus tells in the Bible where he actually specifically names someone in the story. And so there's a lot of scholars who believe that this could actually be a true story that Jesus knew about that he's telling. We don't know for sure, but we have every right to believe this could be a true story that we're going to go through here. So, verse 19, it says, There is a rich man who is clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. And some people would say this description fits a Sadducee. He's wealthy, he wears clothes that show high rank, and it talks about frequent feasting, which might not sound like a big deal, but in those days, 
the average person in that culture would go out and feast two or three times a year. And this guy, the food, by the way, the words that are describing these feasts, they mean exquisite, um, gourmet, sumptuous. This, you know, it's not Taco Bell. This is really good food that he's eating, and he's eating this two or three times a day. So this guy's living well. In verse 20, at his gate laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. So notice here, the rich man, he doesn't do anything specifically against Lazarus, other than ignore him. And Lazarus, the poor man, he sits outside the rich man's gate. He's 20 yards every day from the rich man's house. What is that, 60 feet? That's like a fifth of a football field. He's really close to the rich man's house. He's covered in sores. Dogs come up every day. It's a gross picture, but these dogs come up. They lick his open sores. And all Lazarus wants, all this poor man wants, is scraps of bread from the rich man's table. And in those days, um, people ate with their hands, like all their meals, the majority of their meals, people ate with their hands. And they didn't have napkins those days. And so what people would do, especially rich people, what they do, they'd have these chunks of bread on their table. And they would wipe all the grime and all the junk off of their hands onto these chunks of bread. They'd wipe off the stuff on their face when they're done with their meal. And they'd throw the bread on the ground. People would take it away. That's the bread that Lazarus wants. He's not even asking for, you know, some good bread like this freshly baked bread that we have here. He just wants the, the, the dirty stuff that's been thrown on the floor. And that's how Lazarus spends his life. Verse 22 says, The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side, and the rich man also died and was buried. Now, notice here the, the poor man, he doesn't have a funeral, but the rich man does. But the poor man, he gets a heavenly escort up to heaven, and the rich man doesn't. And Lazarus, the poor man, he goes to a place where he's with Abraham. Abraham, you know, the, the patriarch of the Jewish nation. Um, he's highly, you know, every, every, everyone just sees him up as being like the top guy. That's who he goes up and he's with. And the words that are used to describe here too, when it talks about him being there leaning into Abraham's side, is the same words used in John 13, chapter 13, verse 23, when um, the one that Jesus loved leaned into Jesus' chest at the Last Supper. And it's a sign of, of intimacy, of, of uh, you know, um, safety, comfort. That's where Lazarus goes. The rich man goes to another place. And I'm sure the rich man, I'm assuming, he probably wasn't expecting to go to this other place. But something we can't assume here, we can't assume that Lazarus was saved because of his poverty. And we can't assume that the rich man was condemned because of his riches. Because it's assumed that Lazarus must have had a close, real relationship with God. And it's assumed that the rich man didn't. And I believe if the rich man really did have a close relationship with God, I hope that he would have been out there actually helping Lazarus. Verse 23 says, In Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off, and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, 
and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. So the rich man, he's, he's a, a descendant of Abraham, but that's not enough to save him. Which I think would have probably shocked some of the Pharisees that were listening to this story. And the rich man, he couldn't claim not to know Lazarus. He recognized him. He knew who he was. He knew, hey, that's the guy that's outside my gate, or who was outside my gate every day. And I think, I think the Pharisees and the people here in the story, they probably would have caught the irony that in this life, you had Lazarus the poor man who was 20 yards away from the rich man, yet there was this gulf between them that Lazarus couldn't cross. And then you go to the afterlife and you have the rich man and Lazarus. And they can see each other, they can talk to each other, but he can't cross that gulf. And remember too, this place that Jesus is describing here, this story that he's telling, this is before Jesus died, before he resurrected. This place that he's talking about, it's called Hades or Sheol. It's a, it's a place of the dead. It's where the righteous go to rest and the unrighteous go and they don't rest. But I don't want to get too caught up in this aspect of the story, in this part of the story. I think the main point of this story is that we need to focus on how we're living now because how we live now is going to affect how we live and you know, where we go in the future. And I think it's so interesting, too, as we read through it, we see that the rich man still has this sense of entitlement even after he dies. He still sees Lazarus as a servant. So his heart, his attitude... That carries with them from this world into the next. 25, verse 25. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he's comforted here and you are in anguish. And it's here too that we see a big distinction. If we can just think back to the first story I talked about, about the dishonest manager. Um, in the first story, we see the dishonest manager, he takes the resources that he has now and he uses it and he plans for the future. And in the second story, we see there's this rich man, and he takes what he has and he uses it for the now. He uses it for himself. He's not concerned about others. Verse 26 says, And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And I think here we see the finality of death. It doesn't say that he goes, the rich man goes, and he reincarnates and he comes back and he gets a second chance. It doesn't say that God said, okay, you know what? You messed up. I'm going to give you another chance. You can go back. You can redo things. You can take care of this poor guy. It's just he's done. He's not going back. Verse 27, And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And we see here that the rich man now, he's become the beggar. He's begging here. And he wants a sign to be sent to his brothers. It's the first time in the story that he actually cares about someone besides himself. But it's too late now. Jesus, who's telling the story, he knows, he knows firsthand. Like, Jesus did crazy miracles, awesome miracles. He raised people from the dead, and yet there's still people that didn't believe in him. There's still people that killed Jesus and wanted to kill Jesus. And Jesus would even go and eventually 
Like I said, he'd be killed and he'd rise from the dead and he'd appear to the crowds. The Bible says he eventually appeared to 500 people and still people didn't believe. And so sometimes we get this idea and we think, you know, if people could just see a sign that, you know, they, they would turn to God and they, they would go to God and they'd change from their ways. And yes, sometimes maybe they would, but it's not, it's not a guarantee. And so that's our two stories. Those are the, the two stories that we're going through today. And I think it's, I think it's a lot to digest. Um, I think it reflects our world. There's a lot of brokenness in our world today. I think that we almost become immune to it. There's going all the way back to the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned and sin came into the world and with that came death and disease and destruction. We see it playing out everywhere in our world today. We see poverty. You know, we see the homeless. We see addictions. We see people caught up in all kinds of destructive things. We see people caught up in, in um, addicted to substances. We see just, I don't know. I, you know what the world looks like. It's, it's, a, it's a tough world we live in, but the good news is that, like, the good news is God wins, you know? God's already won. He's already won this thing, and it might not look like it now, but Jesus, someday, Jesus is coming back. The Bible tells us Jesus is coming back in Matthew chapter 25. It says Jesus is going to come back. And I was reading through Matthew chapter 25, uh, verse 31 or 37, somewhere in there, and, and it's talking about Jesus when he comes back and how he's going to take the people and he's going to separate the sheep from the goats. And he's going to look at who he really knew. And it says that Jesus is going to say, who took care of the needy? Who took care of the poor? Who gave water and food to the thirsty and to the hungry? Who helped those in need? Who knew Jesus? You know, you can say you know Jesus, but I think it's in James, it says, faith without works is dead. It says it somewhere in the Bible. I should probably look that up before I say that, but... Um, <laughs> Faith without works is dead. I know that much. And I want to be among the sheep. I want to be among the people that Jesus says, hey, well done. You, I gave you these resources. I gave you this time, these talents, this influence, and you actually did something with it. Um, just a little over a month ago, I went up to Duluth with, with my wife and my kids, and we met up with some good friends of ours. Um, anyone go to Bentleyville? up in Duluth, uh, it's, it's a Christmas lights display up in Duluth, it was right after Thanksgiving. And we go up to Duluth, we meet up with some friends, we feasted at a restaurant, I had the fish and chips, it's pretty good. Afterwards, we go outside, it's nighttime, it's Duluth, so it's cold, it's dark. Uh, we're going out by the, by the street, and my kids, and our friends' kids, they've already gone across the street, they just zipped over there. I'm not sure why, but I see them over there, and there's a homeless man that's standing there with my kids. And just being honest, my first thought is, great, I'm going to have to go over there now and get him away. I don't want to give money to the homeless man. So I go across the street. I know I'm a horrible person, but I go across the street, and I walk up to them, and I'm like, hey, guys. I, I wave to the guy, to the homeless guy, and uh, he says hi, and I say, okay, guys, we got to go. And so we start walking away. 
And we're walking away, and I glance back, and I can see the homeless guy behind me. He's watching us. And my daughter, I asked her if I could share some of the stories. She's okay with this. I have a 12-year-old daughter named Maria. Uh, Maria stops me as we're walking down the sidewalk. She says, Dad, she says, um, I wanted to help that guy, but I got the feeling that you really didn't want me to. And I said, yeah, I, I don't. And she's like, why? And I said, well, here's the deal. Like, we could give him money, but if we give him money, he's, he's going to spend the money on drugs. He's probably going to spend it on alcohol or cigarettes. We don't want to give that guy money. And Maria goes, Dad. She goes, you don't know that. And I go, yeah, I do. I said, I used to work at a, at a drug and alcohol treatment facility at Minnesota Teen Challenge. I know what homeless people do with that money when they get it. And she said, that's not fair. She goes, Dad, that's not fair. You don't know that. You don't know what he's going to do with that money. How do you know that? And I, I, I said, you know what? No, let, we're not going to do this. We're not going to give him money. At this point, the homeless guy, he's gone across the street. I can see him on the corner. I can see people walking by. It's obvious he's asking them for money. No one's looking at him. Everyone's just putting their head down, walking by, or looking at their phones. And then I get this idea. We have this homeless pack, we call it. It's a Ziploc bag with toothpaste and socks and whatever homeless people would want. My wife and my kids had put it together months back, and it's always in our truck. We're always just waiting for a homeless person to give it to. And I said, hey, Maria, I know what. We can give them that homeless pack. How about that? And she's good at negotiating. She's like, okay, we can do that, but can I at least give him, you know, let me just give him something. I'm like, okay, fine. She has her little red purse with her. So we walk across the street, and as we're walking across the street, uh, she's behind me. The homeless guy, he turns around and he looks at me. I'm like, okay, I'm carrying my homeless pack. And Maria tugs on the back of my jacket, and I turn around, and we're, we're like five feet from the homeless guy at this point. And she says, here you go, Dad. And I take the money she gave me, thinking it's like a $1 bill. And I'm turning around to give it to him, and I see it. And he sees it, and it's a $20 bill. And I stop, and I turn around, and I go, Maria. I go, you don't want to give him a $20 bill. I'm like, this is a lot of money for you. And, and she goes, Dad, yes, I do. I go, no, you don't. And she goes, yes, I do. And she got, I'm not even joking, she gets this look in her eyes. No offense, Christina, I've only seen it in my wife's face before, and it's this look like... <laughs> You don't argue, you just do it. <laughs> I'm like, okay. So I take the $20 bill, I walk up to him, and I, I'm kind of upset though. I'm like, really, this guy, he's going to waste this money. It's, it's all her money. I give him the, the 20 and I say, here you go. I want him to know it's from this little girl. So I say, hey, just so you know, this is from my daughter. She doesn't want him to know it's from her, but, but I'm like, this is, my, this is from this girl. And the guy, you know, you'd think he just won the lottery. He's like jumping up and down, he's so excited. He starts telling us his story, um, starts telling us about this church up the street he goes to seven days a week. I don't know if this is true or not, but, but I'm like, you know, awesome. We have this bus that's coming down the street, by the way. We're going to take a bus down to Bentleyville. So um, I see the bus, and I'm like, God bless you, we have to go. Uh, we got to catch that bus. And the, guy's, the guy's like, God bless you. But before we go, he says something to us, and he says, I'm not going to waste this money. I want you to know I'm going to make this last and I'm not going to waste this money. I thought it was really interesting that he said those words. And afterwards, Marie and I, we didn't talk about it. She didn't say anything. 
but since then, at times, again, being honest, I've thought to myself, there's a good chance he may have used it for alcohol or cigarettes or whatever. Um, but you know what? It doesn't care, or it doesn't matter. I don't care. It doesn't matter because you have this girl who I believe was listening and feeling the prompting of God. She saw another human being that was in need, and she was faithful and obedient, and she took the resources that she had at that moment and put it towards someone that needed it. And we all, here's the thing, we all have resources that God has given us. It might not be money. Some of us don't have a lot of money. Maybe it's not money. But again, we have time. Or if we don't have time, if we're too busy, we have talents. Or some of us, we have influence. Some of us do have money. We all have things that God has given us. And the question is, what are we going to do with it? And I want to challenge you. There's two words I've heard. I think it's so true. The most dangerous two words you can pray to God are the words, use me. Anyone ever heard that? Use me. And I want to challenge you guys this week and in the coming weeks. I want to challenge you to pray to God and say, God, I don't know exactly what you want me to do, but use me. I don't know which resources you want me to use, but help me use them. Show me. And if you don't, if you don't know, if you don't know what you should do, I hear people say, I don't know what, I don't know how to help people. You know, there's a million organizations out there. There's tons of ministries, nonprofits. There's so many hurting people. I've hurting people in my house. You know, I've hurting people next door. I've hurting people down the street, let alone people on the other side of the world. Like, God, where do I even start? What do I, what do I do? I would challenge you. Ask yourself, what makes me angry? That's what I'd ask yourself. What makes you angry? Because we all have things that make us angry. And I'm not talking about getting cut off in traffic. I'm not talking about when you get calls from telemarketers. I'm talking about like things in this world that are going on that when you hear about it, it just breaks your heart. It just gets you fired up. You say, that's not okay, you know? You get fired up about the fact we have the Super Bowl coming to town in a month. Prostitution and human trafficking goes way up when a Super Bowl comes to town. Maybe for some of you, you hear about people that are caught in prostitution and they can't get out. I know someone who has a friend that works overseas with the ministry that helps people get out of prostitution. People get stuck in it, they get pulled into it, and then they're told, if you try and escape, we'll kill your family. And so they're trapped, they can't get out. But I know someone who knows someone who works with this organization that gets people out and keeps them out that lifestyle. Maybe that breaks your heart. Maybe that's a good place to start. I know another lady that works with another organization that does the same thing right here in the United States and overseas. Maybe it breaks your heart when you hear about kids that don't have parents. You know, they're orphans. They don't have a mom or a dad. You know, that's something that broke my heart and my wife's heart. Maybe if that's you, maybe that's a place to start. We support missionaries. Mosaic Church supports Leah and Tyler in West Africa, and they're living on-site at an orphanage. Okay? They're working with 80 or 90 kids that don't have moms and dads, and they're protecting them, they're loving them, they're sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with them every day. Maybe that's something you want to put your resources towards. Maybe you were affected by drugs or alcohol growing up. Maybe it destroyed your family or it's destroyed the lives of people that you know. We have people at our church that mentor folks over at Minnesota Teen Challenge. Clients that are going through a program, getting off of their addictions, 
experiencing Jesus for the first time, some of them. You can go mentor. If you want more information on that, talk to me after church. I can get you connected with Teen Challenge. I'm just, I'm just throwing some different ideas out there. Hopefully some of these help. Um, there's so many opportunities, but think about what is it that makes me angry? Lastly, something kind of fun I thought I'd do today. Um, I'm not going to take credit for the money. This isn't my money. It was donated, but under three chairs out there today, I didn't put it under the chairs. Someone else put it under the chairs, so I don't know which chairs it's under. But under one chair, there's an envelope with a $5 bill. Under another chair, there's a 20 Under another chair, there's a $100 bill. So I'd like all of you to reach under your chairs. There's three envelopes. And whoever gets these envelopes, you don't, you don't have to hold it up. You don't have to show everyone that you got it. But in the coming week... For those of you that got the envelope, I want you to go out, I want you to find someone that's hurting, that needs to experience God's love, and I want you to figure out a way to bless them. Pray to God if you have that envelope. Just say, God, show me who to give this to. And I'd love to hear your stories. And for those of you that just pray, use me. And Jeremy, you can come on up, by the way. In a minute, we're going to go into a time of communion. But for those of you that pray, God, use me. And as God uses you, I'd love to hear the stories about how you're used by God. And I truly believe that as we're used by God to bless others, to help other people come into a closer relationship with Jesus, I believe that we're going to naturally become more positive people as we are part of something bigger, as we're part of God's work here on earth. Again, things are bad in this world, but... We can do something about it. We're supposed to do something about it. And so that's, that's my challenge. That's my challenge for all of you today. Now, Jeremy, you can come on up. Um, like I said, we're, we're going to go into a time of communion. Uh, for those of you that are maybe first-time guests today here, we want everyone to know you don't have to be a member of Mosaic Church to receive communion. Um, you just, we just ask that uh, you be someone that recognizes Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And uh, Jeremy, you know what? I'll let you take the rest from here.